Eight years ago, a gunman murdered 20 young children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Americans were shattered and outraged. The cries for change came swiftly. Then-President Obama vowed to do whatever it took to prevent Sandy Hook from happening again. He tapped his vice president, Joe Biden, to lead a task force to end gun violence. The fact that this problem is complex can no longer be an excuse for doing nothing. That's why I've asked the vice president to lead an effort that includes members of my cabinet and outside organizations to come up with a set of concrete proposals. In the years prior, mass shootings took lives at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia, an army base in Fort Hood, Texas, and a grocery store near Tucson, Arizona, among others. Nor was the tragedy of Newtown the last. Since that day, we've mourned deaths in San Bernardino, at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, a concert in Las Vegas, a church in Sutherland Springs, high school in Parkland, and the list goes on. After each mass shooting in America, calls for gun control surge. And while public opinion on reform ebbs and flows over time, Sandy Hook served as a tipping point, setting the bar for where the public stands on stricter gun laws. By now, it's well known that 90% of the American people support universal background checks that make it harder for a dangerous person to buy a gun. But it's not going to happen because 90% of Republicans in the Senate just voted against that idea. Congress is still debating policy solutions, including closing background check loopholes, banning assault weapons, even though some of these have by and large been embraced by the public. Meanwhile, mass shootings continue. March brought two back-to-back tragedies, the first in Atlanta, targeting women of Asian descent, and the second at a grocery store in Boulder, where a gunman used an assault rifle to kill 10. In a routine that has become almost predictable, policymakers pledge swift recourse. As president, I'm going to use all the resources at my disposal to keep the American people safe. This is not, it should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. President Biden called for a ban on assault rifles. Democrats accelerated efforts to pass background check reforms that have already cleared the House, but await a Senate vote. But is this moment any different than the others? We have a president who is ardent in his support for gun reform, an increasingly vocal group of gun control advocates in Congress, and public support for middle-round policies. Is bipartisan reform possible, or are we hopelessly condemned to inaction? I'm Laura Arnold, and on today's Deep Dive, we'll discuss gun violence. We'll talk about what we do and don't know about its causes and how to prevent it. And we'll talk about the politics that threaten to stand in the way of reform. I'm pleased to be joined by four esteemed guests today. Later in the show, we'll hear from Peter Ambler, Executive Director of Giffords, a gun violence prevention advocacy group that is leading the charge for policy reform. But we'll start the conversation with three of our foremost experts here at Arnold Ventures. Kevin Madden, Executive Vice President of Advocacy, Jeremy Travis, Executive Vice President of Criminal Justice, and Walter Katz, Vice President of Criminal Justice. Kevin, Jeremy, and Walter, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you. Great to be with you. Good to be here. Kevin, I'll start with you. And I'll start with an obvious question, the $50,000 question. In the last five years, there have been dozens of shootings in the United States with four more fatalities. We've had two mass shootings in the last two weeks alone. 
Around two-thirds of Americans say they support tougher gun laws, but still, the government hasn't done anything meaningful on gun reform since 1994. Why is that? What is it about the politics of gun reform that makes this so hard? I think there are three main factors that are contributing to the challenges that those who want to tackle this issue in a very comprehensive way, they continue to confront. The first is the political and legislative focus around gun violence is often event-driven. And tough issues tend to find a breakthrough point when the engagement level that they have is much more broader and sustained. And then I think when we get to the negotiating table over what policy reforms we want to advance, both sides of the politics of this start to question the other's intentions. And that's a very real problem if you're ever going to try to find common ground if the two main players in a conversation don't trust the other side. How powerful do you think the Second Amendment rhetoric is within the Republican Party? Do you think that that's the dispositive thing? I just logged onto the NRA website and the headline was, Kamala Harris is lying. She and others are coming after your guns. Is that still sort of the crux of the ideological fight here? Yeah, there are very strong beliefs about the Second Amendment as an enshrined right of every American. I think the bigger thing that drives this from a political clash of cultures, though, is a distrust by a lot of Republican voters and a lot of center-right audiences of the federal role in regulating something like this. And that, that is just the idea that a government that is much further away from me as a person, which is that I'm not going to allow a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington to infringe on my rights that I hold here. When I worked on campaigns with Republican candidates and Republican primaries, the most straightforward way that you could get support from 2A supporters inside the context of one of those campaigns is to say you are not going to support any additional federal gun laws on the books. And that is a very motivating message for a lot of Republicans and other center-right audiences. Now, we've talked about how this comes about in the federal discourse, which, of course, is when mass shootings happen, which unfortunately is not unusual. But Jeremy, part of the challenge here is that that actually is a very small part of the problem if we look at the numbers. The problem is much larger and more complex. The Police Executive Research Forum pointed out in a recent report that every day in America has almost as many gun fatalities as the worst year of any mass shooting. So last year, more than 40,000 people were killed by guns, and that wasn't in mass shootings. It was suicides, homicides, domestic violence. We see over 100,000 non-fatal injuries from shootings a year. So the problem is so much bigger. You've devoted your life to researching issues like these. Tell us how we should think about gun violence, its root causes. How do you think about it? Well, I think Kevin is absolutely right that the individual event of a mass shooting tends to elevate the issue of gun safety to national attention, and people find solidarity in their corners. And that makes it very hard for the politics of this issue to move forward. So I think we have to take a big step back and look at gun violence as a phenomenon that has many different manifestations. Uh, researchers who do work in this field talk about the five types of gun violence problems in our country. Mass shootings is one. But as you said, Laura, it actually is a very small sliver of the deaths and the injuries that we could say are attributed to guns. People don't typically think about it, but gun death by suicide is 
close to two-thirds of all the gun deaths in America, and we don't give it the same amount of attention because it doesn't have the newsworthy effect of 20 people dead on one day. But if we wanted to save lives, we'd pay a lot of attention to suicide. Right. 24,000 people died by suicide in the last recorded year. Right. Exactly. Which I believe was 2017. Yeah. Yep. And we focus, and I have, through my career, focused a lot on what we would call urban gun violence. And these are the everyday shootings that occur in not just urban America, but in communities around America where they typically don't get a high level attention. And then we have domestic violence and we have police shootings as a fourth and fifth category. So the first thing we need to do is to look at this as if we were studying cancer. There are many types of cancer. There's lung cancer, there's breast cancer, there's pancreatic cancer. We don't talk about a cure to cancer, and we shouldn't talk about a solution to gun violence. We have to look at them as being each of them with its own dynamics, its own points of intervention, its own ways to address the problem. And if you want to talk about what might be legislative or policy responses, each of them could have its own legislative or policy or regulatory response. Walter is Deputy Chief of Staff for Public Safety in the Chicago Mayor's Office, which was one of your previous jobs. You saw firsthand the trauma of concentrated gun violence. So this isn't just a theoretical policy thing. You've lived it. You've seen it in many, many communities that you touched. Talk to us about what this means as a practical matter for the lives of many communities in this country. Yeah, when I was on the staff of the Mayor's Office, from 2017 until the end of Mayor Emanuel's term in 2019. I got an email for every time that somebody was shot or killed in Chicago. So in that 25-month period, I think I got somewhere about 2,400 emails. The Monday just before the mass shooting in Boulder was just a Monday in Chicago where three people were killed and 15 were shot throughout the city. That was not even the worst day that weekend. It is a challenge when it is the mass shootings, which get so much of the media attention. And that is not to take anything away from the tragedy of them. They're horrific. But there is not nearly as much attention paid to what we're calling urban gun violence. And I think there are some reasons behind that. One of which is that urban gun violence has essentially been pathologized and racialized. Nobody at the policymaker level, at least in D.C., is really talking about it because I think in so many ways it is viewed as an urban problem, not as an American problem. So I think we have to overcome that rhetorical hurdle to get people into the conversation where they're willing to talk about urban gun violence as a public health problem, willing to talk about it as a social problem and then to follow Jeremy's prescription on looking for solutions and also increasing the resources that are being devoted to research so that we can have a stronger base of evidence in which to enact good policies. Laura, can I make a point on that? Because I think it's an important one that Walter brings up about whether or not we really know and what the facts tell us about that. And that's really at the heart of the political case that we make for greater investments in gun violence research. Because In the absence of facts and data and research that's comprehensive over a longer period of time and compared against trends, the debate about how to tackle the problem becomes more emotional and it becomes more political. And as we know, when you have emotions in politics, we don't exactly enact the smartest reforms or the best policies. Right. It becomes deeply ideological. Right. And there absolutely is a research void. 
there's so much uncertainty about what does and doesn't work here. In areas that touch arguably fewer lives, the federal government spends hundreds of millions of dollars in research, things like sepsis and poisonings. But in gun research, the amount is really negligible. Kevin, talk to us about why that is and what is the Dickey Amendment and how has that changed in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, the money that we apply to trying to research and learn about and then combat diseases in this country is enormous compared to the money that we invest in trying to combat a problem in our community, such as gun violence. And I shouldn't say it's largely been changed, but we've made tremendous progress in just the last two years on changing the political dynamics around the Dickey Amendment. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we also believe that the political support for this continues to grow because there's a winning political coalition in support of gun violence research. Women voters, suburban voters, independent voters, even voters in rural communities, they have a vested interest in seeing the gun violence issue addressed in a balanced way. That's something that we've really put a great deal of emphasis and focus on as we've engaged on the issue. It may sound very wonky to an audience to say, oh, data, 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 how's that going to make a difference? Well, we don't understand the basic phenomenon of gun violence itself, sort of the dynamics of gun violence. And to cite one example close at hand, we know a lot about homicides, but we don't know a lot about shootings. We don't know a lot about injuries attributable to shootings, much less the hospitalization and the trauma that flows from those. If it were cancer, if it were COVID, if it were AIDS, if it were brain disease, the federal government in our name as citizens of the country would step up and say, we need to help us figure out how to make things better for our people. And that requires a ramping up of investment. Let's talk about national reforms, which is what is at the forefront of the national discourse right now. Lawmakers are ostensibly talking about solutions. What are they talking about? So what are the four or five things that are floating around as potential solutions to the gun violence problem. The agenda at the moment, and I would hesitate to use the word solution, just promises too much. Absolutely. But the agenda at the moment includes some things we've seen before. One is universal background checks, closing the gun show loophole, and within that closing another loophole regarding domestic violence. President Biden, in a press conference, added the assault weapon ban to that list, and that's perhaps the most controversial. And we've tried that before. When I was in the Clinton administration, we enacted an assault weapon ban that lasted for 10 years and then was lifted. So there are other ideas that have come forward, but I think Kevin's point is the overriding one, which is it's hard to find, particularly in the Senate with the filibuster rule, sufficient support for those to be enacted. And just to take a lesson from the past where the states took a lot of the forward momentum that came from some of the more high-profile mass shootings and where the organizing that emerged from that and saw some pretty significant reforms at the state level. Right. So those are the ideas that are being bandied about with varying degrees of success and interest at the federal level. Let's listen to Senator Chuck Cruz's observations about those ideas. Senator from Connecticut just said, it's time for us to do something. I agree. It is time for us to do something. And every time there's a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders. That's what he says. Jeremy, is he right? What do we know about the efficacy of these proposed laws? And bracketing the larger question as to whether or not they attack the root causes of gun violence, which we've established that they probably do not. 
But is he right that these things won't move the needle and are a red herring? So I think it's disingenuous, with all due respect to a sitting senator, to say that this is theater. We are engaged in a very serious discussion here about ways to save lives through responsible legislation. And one would hope that on both sides of a discussion, even if there's a difference of opinion, that people would take it seriously. And if they took it seriously, we would hope also that there'd be enough research evidence to point the way. That said, we have some ideas of what might be effective. Child access protective laws that shows that if you have a gun in your home, a child and anybody else in your home is much more likely to be a victim of unintentional injuries and death. Waiting periods, there's moderate evidence that waiting periods would decrease violent crime, and that's something else that's being discussed in the federal level right now. Background checks, again, it's not convincing, overwhelming evidence, but there's moderate evidence that those background checks would decrease violent crime. So we have some evidence. It's not that we have no evidence. We don't have enough evidence. But more importantly, we don't have an evidence-based discussion so that the observation that Senator Cruz made would not be given a moment's thought because it wouldn't be theater. It would be serious policymaking and legislation at the federal and the state level. That's the tragedy of the last quarter century. And Jeremy, just to be clear, is there any credible evidence about an assault weapons ban, about whether or not that has taken any effect? As you said at the outset, Laura, as with mass shootings being a very small percentage of all shootings, assault weapons are used in a very small percentage of crime, about 1% or 2%, depending on the estimate. So you don't have a big base to look at to say, does it reduce overall crime? That was almost too much to ask. My own view is that the discussion about assault weapons should be more about their lethality, about their potential for mass shootings, about their ability to inflict enormous harm in a short period of time. And we should ask ourselves, who should have access to that lethality, which focuses more on the background checks and the screening and the mental health screening and the waiting periods. Let's close with some optimism. Kevin, do you have any? (laughs) I do. Look, I think I've been following politics all my life and I've been working as a political professional for the greater part of 25 years. And we've made a tremendous amount of progress on bringing together some of the political constituencies on this. I think the thing, though, that we have to remember is that we have to continue with more broad and sustained engagement. That's really the key to advancing reforms. So I think as long as we're focused on reasonable, substantive progress over a longer period of engagement, Rather than just waiting for the political conditions on the ground to just present this perfect moment, I think that's one way to continue to make progress. Secondly, we always have to be vigilant in engaging with the media and engaging public audiences about the importance of having fact-driven conversations, data-driven conversations, research-driven conversations around this issue, particularly when at a time like we are now, just after a very recent, very public shooting, when the conversation is at its heights. And then I think third is we also have to make sure that we're working very hard to educate and have opposing political factions understand where the common ground is with the other party. I think when we have a dedicated effort to providing the political incentives for more solution-oriented reforms, when we're putting that front and center, we can find a bit more success in achieving that common ground and having that common ground turn into action. And Jeremy, Walter, optimism on your end? Guarded optimism. I do think that that's the best you can get out of me. That's why we love you at Arnold Ventures. We love cynics. Yes, I am moderately encouraged, let's put it that way, with the direction that the research is going. 
And I think that increased focus on that is important, and as well as the data infrastructure. When we have a city like Chicago, which has no gun stores, no federally licensed firearms dealers, but the police department takes about seven to 8,000 crime guns off the street every year, that's a cause for concern. Well, I'll weigh in with Barbara Walter's phrase of guarded optimism. So I take a long view on this. For me, what gives me the greatest hope is the emergence of a sort of a science of community engagement. We're starting to think about what are the ways in which the community can be involved in co-producing its own safety. And this is not just by having a strong community, but by activism of the type that we see around us with cure violence and advanced peace and the hospital-based interventions. There's an emerging area of practice that says it's not just the police that do this work. In fact, the police may not be best suited to do this work in some cases. But what is needed is another municipal function funded by government supported by good research, and that's activated at a municipal level, at the mayor's office level, frankly, to activate those other types of community resources that are organized to reduce violence, to prevent it, to understand it better, because government can't do everything, police can't do everything, and we really need a community-first model here that seems to be emerging from these very difficult circumstances, particularly the recent increase in violence in the pandemic when we saw so much social disruption. Jeremy, Walter, Kevin, thank you so much for your insights. I'd like to turn now to Peter Ambler, a leader in gun violence prevention who co-founded the Giffords organization with former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, who was shot in a mass shooting outside an Arizona supermarket 10 years ago. The Giffords organization has emerged as an influential force in the movement in recent years and has backed more than 300 gun safety laws that have passed since Sandy Hook. Peter, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you. Glad to be here. The shooting at the grocery store in Boulder comes almost exactly 10 years after Gabby Giffords and 17 others were shot outside a supermarket in another mass shooting. At the time, you were Congresswoman Giffords' deputy chief of staff. What went through your mind when you first heard the news of the Boulder shooting, which seems so similar to what you experienced 10 years ago? Here we go again. It's impossible to not hear the echoes from 10 years before difficult to talk about to this day without getting a little bit emotional and you know thinking of everybody we lost in Tucson and thinking about the folks that I never had the opportunity to know obviously we lost their lives in Boulder you've become a guiding force in gun reform in the 10 years since you founded Giffords you've had some pretty remarkable successes in the 10 years that you've been at work that you've been at this formally Talk about what your greatest successes have been on a policy level. Well, I think our successes have been both political and policy focused. And it's important to recognize those political successes as cultural successes because Gabby always says you change the politics and then you change the policy. You don't have the latter opportunity without succeeding at the former. And when we launched Gifford, Gabby felt that she had this unique proposition. Not only was she a survivor of gun violence, she was also a gun owner. And she thought that the debate about guns in America was happening in a deeply unproductive way. It was more about culture, more about identity. It was the coast versus the middle of the country. It was gun owners versus non-gun owners, Democrats versus Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. Fundamentally, there is no other side. There ought not to be anybody who supports gun violence 
And then once you've identified the problem, you say, well, there's a lot of urgency to solve this. People are dying in inner cities, in communities, in schools, on the way to school, from domestic violence, from suicide, as you noted, gun violence is a very multidimensional problem. And we have over the years, because of the success that we've had in reframing the conversation, because of the political strength that we've accumulated, we, for example, been able to pass universal background checks in enough states so that it covers roughly half of the American population, which is important and leaves those folks safer. I think about the impact that that has, the people who are alive today that wouldn't otherwise be. I know we have a shared passion for research and empirical data. Would it be okay if I got a little nerdy and talked about a study or two? Yeah, of course. Of course. We welcome nerds on Deep Dive. (laughs) There's a team of researchers led by Daniel Webster out of Johns Hopkins. And a few years ago, they started looking for controlled changes in gun laws or natural experiments. And they zeroed in on two opportunities, one in the state of Missouri and the other in the state of Connecticut. What they found in those two was both disturbing and sort of hope-inducing. In the year 2007, the state legislature in Missouri repealed what had up to that point been a relatively uncontroversial permit-to-purchase universal background checks law. They were the only state in the surrounding area to do the same thing, so it gave these researchers in a academic, peer-reviewed context the opportunity to see what happens, not in a correlative way, but in a causal fashion. And what they found was amazing. They found a 25% spike in homicides because there's a small substitution effect. They found, I think, roughly 15% increase in homicides period, which ultimately adds up during the years that they studied and presumably on into the present, roughly 70 people who die in the state of Missouri every year, simply because the legislature repealed this law. They looked at the state of Connecticut, which did the inverse and saw gun homicides decrease by 40%. So clearly, there are laws that are consistent with Americans' gun ownership and the Second Amendment that can have a profound impact on public safety. And that's what we're here to deliver for the American people. But you got to win the political argument first. All right. What are your top, I don't know if you want to say five, 10 to state policy priorities. What do you want to see happen in states that you think is feasible? I think you mentioned at the top that gun violence is a kind of multidimensional issue, that there's a whole matrix of failure that goes into our epidemic of gun violence. So it's reasonable to assume that each state is going to have a somewhat different set of priorities depending on their own experience with gun violence. Universal background checks is just the bare minimum for what we need to put in place. And today, we know up to 20% of firearms transactions occur without a background check. And obviously, those who wish to need to skirt those rules and regulations are going to take advantage of those loopholes. And we've seen that happen time and time again. There are other really important evidence-based solutions that we can employ in these states that have an impact on homicides, on suicides, and all forms of gun violence. I'll point to the extreme risk protection order, otherwise known as a red flag law. And these laws modeled on you know, d- domestic violence restraining orders, which are very popular and we're all well acquainted with, allow sets of people close to somebody who may be in crisis to hurt themselves or others, the opportunity to temporarily restrain that individual's access to 
a firearm. And the academic research into the efficacy of those laws is, again, truly astounding. There have been studies that show that for every 10 such orders issued, one life is saved. And in terms of a bang for your buck on a public safety or a public health front, that's a pretty big return on your investment. And of course, they have overwhelming support. As do, by the way, all of these universal background checks, 90% of Americans support this. Gabby likes to joke that that's the only thing that gets 90% support for Americans is ice cream and free money. So, Peter, let's talk about the politics of some of these initiatives, especially at the state level. It seems as though we always talk about this after a mass shooting. And sadly, we have many occasions to talk about this because we've seen numerous mass shootings lately. But after mass shootings, there's this rally uh, discussion about some of these issues. It seems like some Democratic states pass some measures but frequently fall short. And in states that are controlled by Republicans, actually the inverse happens. Gun rights become more paramount and more prominent. So we're seeing, for example, after Sandy Hook, something like 14 states pass constitutional carry or its equivalent. So why do you think that happens? I think it is a relatively sad state of affairs. I don't have a very clean answer for it, but I do point out that it's impossible to divorce debate about guns from broader trends towards polarization in this country. When you have groups of Republicans and the center of gravity on guns on any number of issues falls farther to the right, you have the sort of race to the bottom. And I think you see that on guns because everybody wants to prove they're conservative bona fides to each other. But there is hope. There are, as we speak, Democrats and Republicans working together in the Senate trying to figure out a path forward how to unite senators across party divides, across something that's going to have a meaningful impact on this gun safety crisis. Because I think they understand that they can't not act. We're coming out of 2020, which will, when all the data comes in, show the highest year-over-year spike in gun violence rates in decades. And then the fact that over the past year, there have been potentially roughly 50 million guns that have been purchased. People are less stable and angrier than ever. And we're running this tragic national experiment as a nation of what happens when you load folks up with guns and you have the least restrictive gun laws in the entire world. But in terms of how to drive towards the results in Congress, I think you do have a policy consensus across the country. You do have to meet people where they are. When you think about a path to 60 or whatever number of folks it's ultimately going to take to pass something. I think it's on us to do something that we know will be effective. We can't address an issue in a way that is just going to let certain people feel good about themselves. We have to be confident that a piece of policy is actually going to be used to address gun violence because, one, that's what we're here to do, and two, we have to build support for the broader agenda. So you'll continue in this fight? Oh, absolutely. And you're optimistic that this year will yield some important wins for you, both at the federal level and at the state level? Yeah. and I think. It's also deeply important to the institution of Congress, to the institution of the Senate, that they're able to produce some impact here. Because when you think of a problem as deep, tragic, and unaddressed as gun violence has been, when you look at the available solutions and their record of efficacy and their levels of popular support, I think that if 
Congress does not find a way forward, if the Senate does not find a way to improve policy, save lives, and say to the American people that this matters. So many people just want the Senate to be like, this matters to me. We're willing to step up and the special interest gun lobby dams, we're going to take action on something that the American people are deeply concerned about. And closely divided Washington is always difficult. Narrow House majority, 50-50 split in the Senate. Getting anything impactful and meaningful done is going to be a tough fight. But that's what we're here to do. We're on the right side of history. And I'm optimistic at the end of the day that we fundamentally don't have a choice. We have to do something. Well, best of luck to you on behalf of all of us in the United States, because this is an issue that is not only complex and deep-seated, but that we really need to get right for the sake of our society, for the sake of our children, and for the sake of our prosperity. So thank you, Peter, for coming on to speak with me today and for your work on this important issue. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Peter Ambler, Executive Director of the Giffords Organization. A special thank you to Kevin Madden, Jeremy Travis, and Walter Katz for sharing their expertise and insight. This has been Deep Dive, a production of Arnold Ventures where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. To learn more about gun violence research, visit www.arnoldventures.org. I'm Laura Arnold. Thanks for listening.